New ideas and new technology are causing seismic shifts in the media industry. Where are we headed? What does it mean? Keep listening. Media strategist Gabriella Mirabelli talks with the brightest minds in entertainment and business. Meet the innovators, the risk takers, and the disruptors on the front lines of change from Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and beyond. The future is coming to a screen near you. Are you ready? This is the Up Next podcast with Gabriella Mirabelli. Welcome to Up Next. I'm your host, Gabriella Mirabelli. My guest today is Courtney Harding, a professor, author, marathoner, experienced founder, content creator, and in-demand expert. As the founder of the award-winning agency Friends with Holograms, she was a pioneer who created VR training pieces around topics like child abuse, workplace exclusion, mental health, Black maternal mortality, and racial bias for companies like Lowe's, Walmart, PwC, Amazon, Target, and more. Building on her book, How We'll Listen Next, Courtney's latest venture, How We'll Blank Next, takes her years of experience in spatial computing, the metaverse, crypto, and other frontier technologies to examine how they will impact numerous verticals. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. You started your career writing about music and moved from there into the VR space and have spent years helping companies understand the metaverse, VR, AR, transition from Web 2 to Web 3, and generally how the digital revolution is changing the way we work. What prompted you to launch this new venture? Yeah. So in 2015, I went to an art show. It was a musician I really liked. She was playing at a gallery in Long Island City, New York. And I really just thought I was going to go see this musician. And when I walked in, she had a virtual reality experience playing alongside her music. And of course, this was 2015. So this was the Oculus developer. early. Yeah super early. Oculus Developer Kit 1. If I were to go back and look at it now, I would think, oh my gosh, this is the most rudimentary thing ever. But at the time, it was really amazing. What she was doing was she was in the center of the dome performing, just sitting on a chair, performing her music. And you would sit basically next to her on stage in a headset for three minutes to do the experience. And what you were seeing was projected on the ceiling of the dome. So you could kind of see everyone's slightly different experiences as you watched her and waited in line to get in the headset. Mm -hmm. So I did that. I got in the headset and I just remember walking out of that experience. It was a bitterly, bitterly cold day in January. I almost didn't go because it was so cold. And finally, I was like, no, I really want to see this woman. I'm a huge fan of her music. I bundled up and I went. And I just remember walking to the subway and seeing things out of the corner of my eye and really thinking there's something here. Mm. And I didn't know what it was in that very moment, but I just was so compelled by it and moved by it. And so that was the start of the journey. It's been a, a long, long period since then. It feels a lot longer than maybe it actually is. But I also look back at the growth of the space from when I saw that in 2015 until today it has been astronomical. Right. Right. Well, how it's framed, how will blank next? It's sort of a futurist take on things. What kind of time horizon are you thinking when you're imagining next? I tend to think in five to 10 years. That's kind of how I look at next. That seems reasonable to predict. Anything in the next 25 years, 50 years, I think you you just get into science fiction because at that point, there's so many things that could happen. But I think five to 10 years is always for me a reasonable time horizon. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I generally shoot for. Sometimes I think, okay, maybe in the next two years, we're going to do something when this certain thing hits the market or when this certain thing changes. But my sweet spot for thinking about where we're going to go next is in the five to 10 range. Well, and now because we have hit that exponential 
point, I think with certain tech working together and certain chips enabling certain things to happen, that a lot can happen in five to 10 years. A lot, a lot, lot, lot can happen and change. How are you getting the word out about this. So I just launched this really recently. And this this came about because I was, I'll be totally honest with you, I was really burned out. I was really (laughs) feeling, I just, I was feeling kind of uninspired. And I felt like I wasn't challenging myself in interesting ways at the time. I tend to be the type of person, I don't sit still for very long. I move around a lot. Physically, I move around a lot. And in my work, I, I like new things. I like learning new things. And I just, I felt like I was a little stuck. Right. So I really just kind of this, this kind of hit me like a bolt out of the blue when I was thinking about the books I'd written. And one of the books I'd written was How We'll Listen Next, which was my music technology book. And I really thought, gosh, I liked, I just want to broaden this out and think about how we'll do everything next. Right. I was the, the, the sort of joke of it a little bit is I was the state champion impromptu speaker twice in Oregon when I was in high school. And I've always had a talent for just kind of getting up and talking and making it reasonably coherent, I guess. And so I really thought it could be fun to do something where I would either have somebody give me a prompt or I would kind of make up a prompt and really just spin out for a couple of minutes how this would be next, always sort of bringing it back to this emerging technology. Mm-hmm. And so with that as kind of the lens, I started really thinking about, okay, what what do I want to think about? I've done everything from Barbie. I did How Will Barbie Next a couple of days ago. Of course, I had to get on the zeitgeist about the movie. I did something today on, it was actually a lot darker on memory and, and loss because I was thinking about my dog is very old. She's getting older. Dogs, unfortunately, don't live forever. And so thinking about how would I remember my dog in the metaverse? Could I build a virtual version of her to interact with if I was feeling sad when she is no longer here. Hopefully that's a long time from now, but thinking about that and then what are the ethics of that versus what are the ethics of building a person, right? Right. And building a private person versus a public person. And then what if it's somebody who's still living, but you're no longer in contact with them? Everyone's had that bad breakup where they think, what if, what if, what if, what could have this been? And so you could theoretically build an AI version of your ex boyfriend, girlfriend, partner, whoever, and have a relationship with them, even though you are not in contact with that person. So thinking about what are the ethics of this and trying to do it in sort of a quick, punchy way. So it's really meant to be sort of a fun little thing for people to consume with the idea that it'll launch further inquiry and further thought. Right. Well, it it definitely is a thought starter. I, I have to say you're very positive. I am. I I thought as I was listening to to different episodes, wow, I am from the house of doom because I am listening. I'm like, yeah, but what about this thing or that thing? Let's let's talk about the memory piece and the ethics. And with a dog companion animal, maybe there are less immediately obvious ethics in terms of the the person because it's not a person. It's it's a dog, and we allow control over animals. But with social media, we've seen parents and children and the debate about posting about your children, right? Yeah. Um, and so then certainly with parents or grandparents, and I actually, I had an interview with a gentleman who has built a, a personal AI. And the the idea is in, is not just personal efficiency and meeting scheduling and coffee ordering and plan and table booking. It, it really is the idea that you could eventually maybe have a conversation and get advice from your parent after they've passed, that that could be a meaningful thing for people if if their nature is, is loaded in. But there are ethical questions. And, and also understanding, at least right now, it, it isn't, it isn't sentient. 
it is predictive language, which can yeah. give the appearance of sentient, but it's not. It's not really thinking. And I think that that's a very tricky thing for people to to deal with. How are you? I mean, yeah. how do you feel about that? I mean, where where do you think we're going in terms of sentience? Yeah, so that's a huge question. I actually have given talks on this before. I gave a talk on this yesterday about something very similar, which is creating an avatar version of yourself and then letting that avatar version do the work that you don't want to do, right? So I'll give you an example. Right. My husband got a new job and working for a new... My husband works in finance and he's working at this new bank. And part of what happened when he had to sign up to for this new job at this new bank was he had to move all of his investment accounts to that, right? So he has spent, and he is a fairly senior person at a finance company. So his time is not cheap to say that. And so he has spent countless hours talking to just the dimmest people trying to switch his billing from this bank to that bank. Now he's probably he's probably lost $3,000 worth of time easily, if not more on this, right? There's no reason he has to do this. And there's no reason someone on the other end has to do this either. Their time is better spent too. Mm-hmm. So you could theoretically just create a, a chatbot of yourself or an AI of yourself, an AI of whoever's on the customer service end, and they just work it out, right? You don't even have to think about it. You just plug some information into a site or plug some information into a metaverse world, and then everything just gets done and you don't have to think about it. So that's the thing that I'm envisioning. I think about what parts of my job I don't enjoy, right? Some of the sales stuff, some of the more administrative stuff. I could create a version of myself that could do that just in the background while I'm doing other things that I do enjoy and that I'm good at. So I think there's that. I think the key with that is consent, right? Because this is where all the AI stuff for me gets very interesting. I just pulled something up and somebody made a post on Reddit about this fake feature in World of Warcraft. So they just made it up for fun. So somebody else. The AI Wait, you mean up. they? The, the poster created a yeah. totally facetious, an, an, an about a feature that yeah. doesn't exist. Okay. Yeah. So this poster made basically a joke post on Reddit about this fake World of Warcraft feature. An AI-driven bot scraped it and published an article about it on some gaming blog. So that's kind of where we're at right now, right? And so I think there's a couple of things when we're thinking about AI and how that'll work in the metaverse or just generally that we need to think about. And the first is consent. So well, yeah, and, and IP and scraping. Yep. yep. <laughs> and so here's where I come down on it, coming from a, a music business background. So right now, a lot of AI is basically Napster in the sense that it is pretty much unverified. So right. I, I'll date myself. I used Napster a ton in college, the point where they almost kicked me out because I was using it so much. Right. And when I would type in new Pearl Jam song, maybe I would get a new Pearl Jam song. Maybe I'd get something else. Maybe I'd get a virus. Maybe I'd get pornography. Who right. knew? It right. was a magical surprise. Right. right? Now, Napster went bust because they didn't get consent from the artists. They didn't pay the artists or the labels, anything like that. So we're at a stage with AI where I believe it's the Napster phase. Now, where I think it's going to go next is the Spotify phase, where if I type new Pearl Jam song into Spotify, I'm going to get the new Pearl Jam song. And Pearl Jam is going to get paid and the record label is going to get paid and Spotify is going to get paid. And Can I jump in I, there though? Because Spotify, because Pearl Jam doesn't make what it used to. And well, Pearl Jam isn't necessarily as thrilled with Spotify as it was with this sort of scarcity economics of albums and Oh, sure. But like, like that. once the Pandora's box is open, it's very hard to close. Right. So but like does that AI, mean you shouldn't try? You can try, I guess. But I would be shocked if AI went away. 
I'm not saying AI would go away, but I, what I'm saying is there was a certain amount of all of this, this scraping that happens and the propagation of stuff without credit or permission that happens right. a certain amount. And also let's say, what is it? What is it? Is it 524? The one where platforms aren't responsible for what people post, right? Because, oh yeah. So because we didn't want to slow down the tech, we didn't want to hurt the tech, this, this nascent industry. And then once this nascent industry is kind of big and huge and powerful, they're like, yeah, we're not going to do that. Right. So, so now before it happens, yes, it may be hard, but it doesn't mean it's impossible. It just means maybe they're slower to profit or maybe, I mean, for instance, I've seen posts around AI companies and they're like, wow, it's only 10 people and they've built this amazing thing. And it's yes, thanks to the data of millions who they have trained right. it on. And those millions who did not necessarily get permission and have no peace in this situation. And is there, are we heading, are we heading toward feudalism 2.0? Well, so I think the idea is not getting rid of AI altogether, but I think right. the idea is let's put guardrails around it to make right. it better. So the idea would be, okay, you can choose not to consent to having your data scraped, right? Mm -hmm. if, if There are plenty of artists who say, I'm not going to be on Spotify because it's not worth it to me. I don't enjoy, I don't like it. I'd rather be on a different service or I'd rather just sell CDs. And that's fine. You can do that. Now you will lose out on certain things. Mm. But you can, but that's your choice. You make an informed choice. Right. So right. it's really about consent, right? And it's about payment. So if you are an actor or an actress and you say, you know what, I would like to be part of this, then you can negotiate that and you consent to that. And if you're an actor or actress who says, no, this is not in my best interest and here's why, then you don't have to consent to it. And I think that's really where we start thinking with AI because right now it is out of control. It's scraping stuff from all over the place. Nobody is getting paid. It's constantly serving up fake information like I just talked about. All so right. that's yeah, that's the other huge challenge is how do you verify when you're looking at these artificial intelligence prompts? And so that's why actually putting guardrails around it to say, okay, the New York Times will do a deal with an AI service and say, we will feed all of our content in, in exchange, we'll get this much money or ownership or however they want to negotiate it. Mm. And then the AI is pulling from verified sources because I think verified sources and verification is going to be the biggest selling point. In right, the right. That it's, trust, that it's trustworthy, that that this is a thing that it's a known quantity. Uh, I agree. I think that that's uh, one of the challenging things about the tech. Talk about separating the the worker from the, their creation. It's it kind of goes to the heart of that. You create a lot of content, and you would hate to have somebody just scrape that and then repurpose it, and it will be you know I have a chat bot which can deliver exactly what you've said in the past. It's a pastiche. It's a recombination of what you've yeah. said in the past, but you've developed that over years, and certainly wouldn't want that to happen. You know? I wouldn't want that to happen without getting paid for it, right? Well, like, right. I, you, you'd want to be paid for it. Exactly. Yeah, I, I mean, be compensated. So I think that's where, I mean, look, I, I don't have a crystal ball, but I do have a reasonable amount of knowledge in the space. What are the forces that will force it to happen? Do you think it's going to be government regulation? Lawsuits. Probably just tons and tons of lawsuits, lawsuits and eventual government regulation. But it's funny, I taught a class at Barnard College this earlier this year. And of course, these are really, really smart young people. Oh my gosh, they're brilliant young people. And a lot of them were juniors and seniors and sort of thinking about their next step. And I said, look, I'll give you my advice, which is go to law school, 
become an attorney specializing in intellectual property, copyright, and artificial intelligence, and you will never lack for work because this is really the next wave. And there are very few people that are experts in this. And I do think Sarah Silverman's already done this. Sarah Silverman has filed suit. A lot of artists are starting to file suit to get their stuff taken down. So I think it's just going to be a lot of lawsuits. It's going to be the same as Napster, right? It'll be a lot of lawsuits. And then the companies can either choose to shut down, Napster initially eventually did, or pivot to a model where it's fairer and consensual. I guess one of the things to your point about you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. Once the language models have learned Sarah Silverman, you can't unpack that. And, and also, unlike people who learn slowly and incompletely, models learn everything right away 100% from a previous, like if, if you combine yeah. models, they all of a sudden have full, complete, replicable knowledge. And so pulling it out is, you can't really. So are there, is it forced compensation? What do you- Yeah, I mean, theoretically, you could say, okay, give us back pay for X amount, right? It, it's never going to be perfect, mm. but you could say, okay, we'll settle for X amount or creators will get paid Y amount or something like that. There'll be some sort of payout to just clear the decks. Mm. And then moving forward, if you want to use a model, it'll have to be a verified model. Now, theoretically, there could be unverified models out there that people could use, right? You can still download music illegally. Right. But, the market, but the market for it is much smaller than it once was, because now it's why would you do that when you can just go on Spotify? Well, right. It's what is the motivator? The other one that I found very interesting that you had posted was about access to power. And I've often heard this around Web3 and the metaverse is democratization because you can endlessly create an ad to it, which has always made me ask, why are there land grabs in the metaverse if it is endlessly open to add things. So tell me what you mean by land grabs. You mean ownership of land and decentralization? Like there were news articles about people are buying, just like they buy real estate, they're buying real estate in the metaverse. But the whole point of the metaverse is it's endless real estate. So what are they buying exactly? Isn't yeah. It? So that's not every meta- metaverse platform. That's a limited number that are trying to capitalize on that. I personally am not a fan of that. I believe very much in an open metaverse and an endless metaverse. Well, also, yeah, isn't the idea that eventually, yes, there are these sandbox metaverses, but eventually the idea is that they're you're fluid and you travel where you want to travel, yeah? Yeah, and you can, still, you can travel where you want to travel today. It's just you have to open and close an app. So I have my, my Chrome browser open right now and I have separate tabs for different social media platforms or work things or things I'm working on. So I can just kind of toggle between the tabs. And obviously, if I'm posting on one social platform, maybe I'm not going to post the same thing on another. I have different sort of personalities on each platform, depending on what the platform is. So I think there's a world where you work in Horizon workrooms during the day. That's where you that's your metaverse for work. And mm-hmm. then you come home and you eat dinner and you touch grass. And then maybe you're like, okay, I'm going to play a game with a friend of mine in spatial. And we're going to go into spatial together and have a catch up and play a little bit and do whatever. And your avatars, your personality will be different because your personality when you hang out with your friends is different than your personality when you talk to your boss. Right. That's nothing new. I mean, the nice thing about the metaverse is it is, and it's endless. It's like social media where you can just kind of be on there forever. Everyone can be on there. There's no limit to the amount of people who can be on there. And so that's what's really fascinating about it is you can just kind of be in there and be on different platforms and move around very freely. I mean, the Decentraland was the, is, I guess still exists, the metaverse where people were buying land. 
that was to me sort of a, a, a crypto NFT land grab okay. that really kind of got big and then faded away. Right. But listen, it's it's cool to try new things. It's cool to do that. I think verification in the metaverse more broadly is going to be a massive, massive issue. And that's something that I've been thinking about a lot. Mm. And I think the metaverse offers us new opportunities to verify people in new ways. Right. Because right now what we've seen is web two and the internet are just a disaster. I don't know who I'm talking to the vast majority of the time. Right. Twitter getting rid of verification just destroyed it. Well, that, that was platform. that was fascinating what that did to the whole concept of who's saying what and how reliable it is. I thought that was a really destabilizing and devaluing move. And it was fascinating. I want to back up a bit. When you're giving advice to people about how they should mentally think about the intersection around technology and behavior, what would you say are some guiding principles that they should bring to their thought process? Yeah. So, I mean, I, for me, the metaverse is all about building communities, right? Okay. So I was just talking to somebody else about this earlier today. Obviously, there will be commerce in the metaverse. There should be commerce in the metaverse. That's fine. The challenge is doing commerce first in the metaverse is, I mm. believe, huge mistake. Yep. So I'll give you two examples of communities, one that does the metaverse really well, and one which I won't name specifically, uh, just to be nice, that didn't do it well. So the community that I think, the company that I think does the best in the metaverse is Nike. Mm -hmm. So Nike has a world in Roblox that is fantastic. It gets tons of visitors. It's very sticky. Users come back again and again because they resource it correctly and they program it really well. So when you go in there, there's always people and there's always something happening. So they have really invested in building this community and it's been great for their brand. And it's not sales driven per se. The ask is not you go into the Nike world and you're, it's a Nike store where you buy Nike sneakers. Although they do, obviously they do events around a new shoe drop, a new t-shirt drop, a new whatever, but it's community first and kind of sales second. That's why I think they've been so successful. Listen, I'm all for people trying things. I think it's great. I think Companies should really just try and build and learn in the metaverse as much as possible. But there was a fast food brand that built basically a version of their restaurant in the metaverse. And they spent a ton of money on it and a ton of time. And it launched with all this fanfare. And it was in all the ad press. And ooh, so exciting. How cutting edge. They did it essentially just for the press release, right? I can't think of any other reason why they wanted to do it. Because the first day I went in there... And yeah, there were lots of people in there and you could go to the restaurant and play games and there was virtual food. But once you did that, there was no reason to go back. So right. I spent a couple hours in there on the first day and it was really fun. And then I went back a week later and I was one of three people in there. And then I went back a few months later and it was just a virtual tumbleweed blowing through. And it was really, really, really sad. And yeah, that's, that's an issue to your point. That's not resourcing it. Well, I think when companies yeah. do make plays in these spaces, they need to understand that it is an ongoing investment or else yeah. it's a waste. You, well, you know? it's like social media was 15 years ago, right? I mean, I talk about this in a keynote that I do where I call myself out because when I first saw Twitter and of course now Twitter is what it is. But when I first saw Twitter, I thought this is absurd, right? This is so silly. And I was working at a magazine. I was an editor at Billboard. And one of our interns said, oh, can we do something with Twitter? And I was like, yeah, knock yourself out. Just create a billboard Twitter and have fun, do whatever. Right now that up until a few, up until maybe last year 
would have gotten you fired. Right now, Twitter is what it is. But pre-Elon, Twitter was, they had entire teams. There were entire very profitable agencies that just did social media. It's a skill. It's a really challenging skill for a lot of people. And you have to be really good at it. And brands have very specific voices on social media. And so... I kind of go through all this to say that, look, you can't just put up a metaverse world and then expect people to show up. You have to resource it. You have to build it. You have to make it an interesting place for people. And I think very, very few brands understand that right now, which is a shame because if they resource correctly and build something really good, they will have a massive audience. I mean, Roblox has a huge audience and it's a young audience and it's an excited audience. That's where brands need to really be investing in, in these different worlds. And Nike and a, a handful of others aside, I'm not seeing it, which is a shame. Well, I think there, what you have is where's the budget coming from? And there's not right. a lot of, if you think about who's leading the departments, the brand awareness departments, and, and what is it even, where does it sit? Is it in strategy? Is it in product? Is it in marketing? Is it a whole new department? And how does it function? And they simply, given the age of the leadership, they don't necessarily see it, which comes to sort of the last question when thinking about new technologies and behaviors. How much do you think generational demographics play into adoption rates and then also cultural factors? The early adopters in gaming aren't even in the United States. They're in Southeast Asia. If you really want to learn what's happening, you have to go various places to see the, the real cutting edge. What are your thoughts around the generational demographics, but also cultural demographics? You couldn't have teed this up more perfectly. So thank you. So I saw something recently, and again, this was on Twitter, so caveat, not scientific. <laughs> but, but I do believe this was was true because they took a lot of sentiment. It was a basically a sentiment analysis. And they found the populations most excited about the metaverse were all in the developing world. And the populations least excited were all in the developed world. So it was Ireland and the US and Western European countries all were negative about the metaverse. And all these developing markets were really positive about it. And I mm. think we've hit a tipping point in the US and Western Europe where we're almost anti-technology. So I was in China a couple of years ago before COVID. And I went to the ATM at the airport and I got $100, right? $100. And I thought, okay, well, I'm going to need money to pay for things here. Right, I didn't, right. I didn't use cash for a single thing. I went to buy dumplings at a little hole in the wall stand. And the woman working there laughed at me, took my phone out of my hand, used my phone to pay for these dollar dumplings. Right. And just handed the phone back to me. I live in New York City, one of the biggest, the biggest city in America, one of the biggest cities in the world. There are still places in my neighborhood in Brooklyn that are cash only. I got right. in a taxi and the taxi driver was cash or card. And I was, I'll just give you beads to buy the island of Manhattan. So we've hit this weird inflection point that's almost anti-tech in the U.S. And the problem is we're just going to look like idiots eventually because these other countries will take over. So if and you are a person and you want to know where it's going, where should you be looking? Where where are where should you be? Should you be going to Singapore? Should you be going to the Middle East? Where would you recommend? The Middle East is doing some really fascinating stuff. And there's a lot of Saudi Arabia's leaning way into this, mm. right? I went to Davos earlier this year to speak. And right outside the place I was staying, there was a giant billboard for Neo, which is Saudi Arabia's kind of new venture. And it's a new island they're building. And they're doing a ton of metaverse stuff. I think Southeast Asia mm. is really, really leading in the space. African countries have taken huge leaps when it comes to fintech, everything in Kenya, you just pay with your phone, right? So I think that, yeah, looking at these developing markets, because I think there's less fear 
there's more excitement and less fear and less baggage. Well, so, maybe if you have less, you jump ahead because what you got isn't working so well. Whereas if you're happy with what you got, you're maybe not going to be interested in changing it up. Yeah, I think there's also a lot of just attachment to the past in the U.S. and Western Europe that kind of prevents us from seeing the future. In Brooklyn, a couple of years ago, they wanted to build a new apartment building on an empty parking lot. This was not a beautiful historic home. This was not, like, oh, where George was. Washington stayed. This was a parking lot for a grocery store that was gone. And people in this neighborhood were up in arms about saving a parking lot, right? This is what we deal with in America. In China, they just knock it down, rebuild it, knock it down, rebuild it, knock it down, rebuild it. And I don't necessarily think that's great, but I think the sort of really obsessing over the past and obsessing over kind of, no, you can't build anything that attitude really sort of resonates out and people get very scared of technology. I talk to parents who are horrified about their kids using technology and I'm look, obviously you want to be responsible about it. You don't want to hand your child an iPad and say, Netflix is your parent now, go away. That's not great parenting, but you also want to teach your kids about this in responsible ways because the worst thing that you can do for a kid, I think, is to not let them access technology until they're a teenager and then they just jump in two feet first. And then they they don't know what misinformation is. They don't know how to evaluate sources. They go crazy with it. And also pretty much every job you will have in the future will require interfacing with technology at some level. And so if you are so far behind just in terms of working and comfort with technology, that's going to really impact your job opportunities. Hmm. So interesting. So interesting. Well, thank you so much for your time. I could talk to you literally forever. So (laughs) thank you. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. We've reached the end of another episode of Up Next. I'd like to close by thanking my production team at Up Next, my friend Rob Knott and the voice stars who recorded our open. And of course, all of you, the members of our audience, thank you. I'll be talking to you again next time right here on Up Next. <laughs>